Merry Christmas. I was thinking recently that when Christians say Merry Christmas to each other, they aren't really saying something, they are really saying something very special and profound. It's not just observing a time of the year, even the most wonderful time of the year. It's not just a wish for a happy season. It's not a seasonal greeting, but it's saying something very profound and special. And I'd like to think about that with you this morning. The first Sunday of Christmas is always a real challenge for a preacher. And there are two parts to this challenge. First, what the world calls Christmas, commercial Christmas, is way too long these days. For an entire month, starting the day after Thanksgiving most years, but I think they started before Halloween this year, it's all you hear on the radio, all you hear in Walmart, all you hear in grocery stores. Our ears are constantly filled with great Christmas classics. I saw Mommy kissing Santa Claus, rocking around the Christmas tree. Last Christmas I gave you my heart. Simply having a wonderful Christmas time. Why do they do that? Does anybody enjoy it? The cashiers complain about it, I know. Last year I was in a store, I forget which one, and there were two young men, clerks there at the store, and they were doing something, I forget what, and uh, some horrible Christmas song came on, and one of them let out a groan I could hear an aisle over, and the other one said, it's going to be a long Christmas season. I was going to mention some of my own pet peeves, but, you know, I'm getting kind of tired of Christmas too. And just when the world stops celebrating Christmas, we have 12 more days of it. So it seems like it goes on for a long time. But now the good thing about going on for a long time is that that gives us lots of opportunities, lots of time, and lots of ways to connect with lots of good and great and godly things. Even in this very difficult year, there have been opportunities to connect to family and to friends, to watch favorite movies, to have special cookies and pies and eggnog, real eggnog, and apple cider, real apple cider, and gifts and time off from work, and these are all good and godly things. So what is the problem? Well, here's the problem. At the end of this long season in which there are so many good and godly things to connect to, it's possible to lean back and sigh and think that we had a good Christmas this year after all, without ever coming into contact with the real implications of what Christmas means, the real meaning of Christmas. And that is the challenge. It's possible to enjoy and be blessed with all kinds of good and godly things, and yet never come into contact with the best and most godly thing of all, the real implication of what Christmas means, the real meaning of Christmas. You may remember the cry of Charlie Brown in the Christmas special. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is really all about? And then Linus gets up and explains what happened. And I don't care what translation Luke 2 is being read in in church. I always hear it in King James Version language. Now, I'm not going to get all Linus-y on you. In fact, I want to do something different than what Linus does because Linus does what Luke and Matthew do. Linus reminds us of the historical facts of Christmas because Matthew and Luke place the birth of Jesus in a very special, local, geographical place. Linus reminds us of the historical facts of Christmas just like Luke and Matthew do. But I want to look at what John and I wish I had time to look at Paul do. Where Luke and Matthew tell us historical details, John and Paul, as they tell their versions of the Christmas story, 
explain to us philosophically and theologically what happens at Christmas and what it means. Luke and Matthew tell us what happened, and John and Paul tell us what it means. And I just want to focus on one line from John's gospel in our reading this morning. Verse 14 from John 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. I just want to meditate with you on this line, only half a verse. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The word became flesh. The word. First, the word. Now, this word, word, has a lot of significance. The Greek word logos has a lot of significance. And it's a lot of fun to unpeel all the meanings of logos and the word, word here. But I just want to keep things simple this morning. Simply put, words are how we get to know someone. We don't really know anyone unless we start to use words. Now, by words, I mean concepts, okay? Even gestures or ideas, but some kind of rational content that's being communicated between people. We can see people, we can make inferences and deduce things about them, but we don't really know them. We might see someone at the same place every day and notice them and make some guesses about them, but we don't really know them until we exchange words or concepts or gestures somehow. As an example, and I mentioned this a few years ago, about three years ago, I think, um, there was a, a man who I, I encountered who was walking on the road, one of the roads that I take out where I live, out in the middle of nowhere. And um, he was tall, well, taller than me, maybe 6'2", six, 6'3", six, probably about, I'd say, 15 years older than I am, somewhere around in there. And um, he'd be out there every once, almost every day as I drove down this road, and he'd be out there just march, walking down, straight, back straight, walking to beat the band, you'd think. And as I went by him, the first time I went by him, he, um, he gave me the peace sign. So I gave him the peace sign back, and he smiled. Uh, the next time I drove past him, he gave me two peace signs. So I gave him two peace signs, and he was my two peace sign guy. And uh, whenever I saw him, I would, we'd exchange peace with each other. And um, when I mentioned this a few years ago, I said, you know, I can guess all kinds of things about him. He kind of has a military bearing. I would guess he was a veteran, but I don't know. Why? Because I never stopped and said, Hi, my name's James. I noticed you walking out here and exchanged words with him. And um, I mentioned that in a sermon about three years ago. And I drove past him twice more. We gave each other the peace sign and never saw him again. Those two times I thought, you know, I should pull over and just say, Hey, I, I, I see you out here all the time. I just want to meet you and, and know who you are. And I don't know what happened to him. Why? Because we never exchanged words. I have no way of finding out. I, I, I hope he just simply moved away, but I don't know what happened to him. I can make all kinds of guesses about that man and his life, but I'll never know. Because I never exchanged words with him. So we can guess about people that we see every day. And, and some of these inferences and deductions might be true or they might be untrue, but we don't know until we exchange words or even use gestures to communicate words or somehow communicate concepts to each other. In some way, we have to communicate concepts to each other or else we don't know each other. 
We don't really know anyone unless we start to use words. Now, we can make inferences and deduce things again, but, but we don't really know. And you see, that's why Christians say that you don't really know God until you understand who Jesus is. And of course, this offends other people. It's understandable why it would offend other people to be told you don't really understand God until you understand who Jesus is. Now, Christians don't say that other people are completely ignorant of God, but we say that they don't fully know God. It's possible to look at the world around us and use our mind and and infer and deduce a number of things about God. I mean, the world sure looks like it was put together by someone who was pretty intelligent. And intelligence implies some kind of personality. And we might decide to call that creator God. And we might draw some conclusions about God. Well, God is creative. Okay, that's pretty obvious. Um, Obviously, God is pretty smart. Okay. Obviously, God is powerful. Okay. Obviously, God hates human beings because human life is pretty hard. In fact, it's fairly obvious that God seems to hate life in general since there's so much death in the world. Everything dies, so God must enjoy death. See, we can draw a lot of deductions and inferences about God. Some of them might be true. Some of them might be false. I'll go ahead and tell you some of those I drew were false. Okay, don't panic. How do we know they're false? We only know that because God's communicated to us in words. We can't know about God until God gives us an expression of himself, until God reveals knowledge of himself to us. And that's why Christians say you cannot know God until you understand who Jesus is. The word became flesh. God's eternal self-revealing expression was made flesh. The word became flesh. The word became a baby. That means that the word became soft and cuddly and giggly and smelly and squirmy and cute and vulnerable and eventually killable. The word became flesh that's both comforting and disturbing at the same time. The word became flesh. John John Dixon wrote the most extraordinary, scandalous, and beautiful four words ever penned in any language. The word became flesh. St. Augustine wrote, man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread of life might hunger, the fountain of living water thirst, the light of the world sleep, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. The word became flesh, became soft, became vulnerable. And right from the start, heretics have tried to explain this away. Right from the very start of church history. Some said the word pretended to be flesh, the heresy of docetism. And I'm so grateful, David, that that we use the accurate words of Hark the Herald Angels Sing and, and not that horrible, pleased with men as man to appear. No, 
Jesus didn't appear among men. He dwelt among men as a man. Or another early heresy, Jesus was such a good person that God adopted him as God's son. Or another early heresy, that God's mind inhabited a human body. And so on. But John would have no part of explaining it away. He says, the word became flesh. Now, why is this important? Well, two things. First, there's a great desire on the part of human beings to have absolute rational certainty about certain things of ultimate value and importance. Wouldn't we like to have a logically airtight, watertight argument to explain the gospel? An argument that Christianity is true. I mean, wouldn't that make evangelism a lot easier? You could just have a three-by-five card two propositions, an airtight conclusion, and you could just read it off to somebody and say, see, Christianity is true. And they would say, I guess so. Wouldn't that be nice? But we don't have one of those. I mean, of course, there are lots and lots and lots of rational reasons to believe that Christianity is true, but that's not what I mean. What I mean is um, we don't have absolute certainty. In the tradition that I grew up in, we were, we were given different evangelism tools and, and taught little dialogues to go through to lead someone to the Lord. And, and we learned the Romans Road, which is a way of going through the book of Romans and showing from you are a sinner to your need for Christ and so on. And, and these kind of evangelistic tools. And one of them was to ask someone, do you, do you know that you know that you know that if you died right now, you would go to heaven? Well, that kind of gets your attention, and the person says, well, I guess so because I'm a good person, and then you have an answer for that. Or someone says, well, I've never really thought about that, and then you have an answer for that. And um, once when I was in college at the University of West Florida, and uh, and, uh, another student came up to me and and used that that technique with me and said, would you like to know that you know that you know that if you died right now, you would go to heaven? And I had never thought about it before, and I said, No, I don't think so. Because if I knew that I knew that I knew, I wouldn't have faith. And I think I need to have faith. He didn't know what to say. That wasn't in the little training exercise, but he didn't expect it. I said, we're on the same side. Don't get me wrong. But I I think I don't really want to know that I know that I know. Because then I wouldn't have faith. Now, again, there are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of good reasons to believe that Christianity is true. That's not at all what I'm saying. But I'm saying we don't have an airtight, watertight argument we can print out on a three-by-five card and hand to somebody. We don't have that. And besides, as any college sophomore can tell you, you can't really have absolute certainty about anything. Descartes thought he had found it. He said, I think, therefore I am. But that's just a circular argument. It's like the, the man who comes downstairs in the morning one morning and, and, and he looks all confused and his wife said, what, 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 what's wrong? And he said, well, I had this beautiful dream that I was a butterfly in a garden and it was just so beautiful. And she says, well, why, are you, why does that bother you? He says, well, now I don't know. Am I a man who had a dream that I was a butterfly or am I a butterfly who's having a dream right now that I'm a man? 
Well, if God did give us an argument that he promised would prove absolute certainty that Christianity is true, then any college sophomore could figure out a way to evade it. That's why Pastor Tim Keller says, God didn't send us an argument, he gave us a person. We don't say, listen to my watertight argument. We say, look at this watertight person. And again, I hope I've said it enough, there are lots of rational reasons to believe that Christianity is true. That's not what I'm talking about. And of course, you have to use logic and reason in evaluating the claims that Jesus makes about himself and so on. I'm only addressing a very narrow point, and that is this. We don't say, listen to my great argument. We say, look at my great Savior. We don't say, listen to my words. We say, look at the word. As an example of a presentation like this, there's a British evangelist, Glenn Scrivener, who's put out a YouTube, a 90-second presentation of the gospel. It's called What Christians Believe in 90 Seconds. If you're at home, don't hit pause and go watch it right now, okay? I want to read to you his 90-second presentation of the gospel. In the beginning, there was light and life and love. There was a father loving his son in the joy of the Holy Spirit. And everything has come from light and life and love. And out of this light and life and love has come a world that is destined to share in light and life and love. But you know that the world is not like that. I know that the world is not like that. I look around and I see darkness and death and disconnection. Where's that come from? Well, we've turned from the light. And when you turn from the light, where else do you go but darkness? And when you turn from love, where else do you go but disconnection? And when you turn from life, where else do you go but death? So this is the kind of world we live in. But what does love do when love sees the beloved in trouble? Love says, your pit will be my pit. Your plight will be my plight. Your debt will be my debts. Your darkness will be my darkness. Your death will be my death. So who is Jesus? Jesus is love come down. The Son of the Father comes and becomes our brother to be with us in the darkness, to take that darkness on himself on the cross, to take that disconnection on himself, to even take that death that we all deserve for turning from God. He took that on himself on the cross, plunged it all down into the hell that it deserves, and he rose up again to the light of life and love. And he says, you in the darkness, do you want my light? You in death, do you want my life? You in disconnection, do you want my love? And anyone who simply says yes to Jesus, we get Jesus in our life, we get his father as our father, we get his spirit as our spirit, we get his future as our future. It's for free and it's forever. Do you want to know Jesus? It's an effective presentation. It is rational, it's logical, but it's not an argument that forces us to Jesus. It simply points us to Jesus. God didn't give us an argument, he gave us a person. Secondly, the word became flesh. And that means the word became vulnerable and killable. That means that Jesus suffered. And believe it or not, the heretics tried to avoid that as well. I taught a short course on her- uh, heresy here 
several years ago. Now it was over in the other building. And uh, uh, if any of you attended that, you might remember, you probably forgot by now. But I I showed you early pictures of heretical Christian art showing Jesus on a cross smiling. The soldier's leading Jesus to the cross, and he's got a, Jesus has his arm around one of the soldiers with a big smile on his face. There's an early heresy that Jesus never suffered on the cross. That's why in all of our creeds, we say he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Why, did we, why of all the people in the Bible to mention, is Pontius Pilate mentioned in the creeds? Because it's addressing one specific heresy that Jesus never suffered. But Jesus suffered Now, why is this important? Well, again, for lots of reasons, but only one narrow one I want to talk about today. One verse that gets read a lot around Christmas comes from Isaiah. Um, And and it shows up in Handel's Messiah. That's why we come across it. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, what makes a person a wonderful counselor? Not a professional counselor, like who someone has training and then earns that title of counselor. We call lawyers counselors, there are mental health counselors, there are social work counselors, and, and so on. But, but just th- that word counselor itself. What makes a good person to ask for advice? Well, the answer is pretty simple. When you have a problem, you want to get advice from someone who's experienced what you've experienced, gone through what you've experienced, gone through your problem, lived through it, and emerged from it, and is okay now. And that is why Jesus is a wonderful counselor. He's experienced what you've experienced. He's gone through your problem. He's lived through it. He's emerged from it. And he's okay now. Are you lonely? Sad? Overwhelmed? Betrayed? Hungry? Homeless? Broke? Grieving? Rejected, suffering injustice, facing death, even dying, feeling abandoned by God? Well, so did Jesus. He lived through those problems. He lived through it, and he's okay now. And that's what makes him a wonderful counselor. God knows what those things are like because the word became flesh. The book of Hebrews puts it this way. Since his brothers and sisters have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted, because he himself suffered. What pain and suffering have you endured? What pain and suffering are you enduring? Jesus knows what it's like. And God knows what that's like because the word became flesh. God knows this because Jesus experienced all these things because the word became flesh. The word became soft. The word became vulnerable and abandonable. So first the word, and then the word became flesh. Now back to this one line, only half a verse. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. We've seen his glory. Now, Christmas is a special time. And so I'll say something that I hardly ever say. But if you understand what John is saying here in Greek, this verse explodes with meaning that we don't see in English. You hardly ever hear me say that. And I want to be clear. From the start, Christianity has always insisted that God speaks clearly in all languages. That's what Pentecost is all about. 
Christians insist, and from the beginning have insisted, that everyone of whatever language can understand clearly what God says in Scripture. And so I'm insisting today that if you can read or hear the Bible in English or any other language that you can understand, then you can learn everything God wants you to know. I want to be clear about that. But sometimes, knowledge of the original language can help us understand more fully what Scripture says. And as John is sitting there at his desk, I guess, writing this passage, he has all kinds of Greek words that he can use to communicate the meaning of the passage. He could have said, using English examples, that the word lived among us, or remained among us, or walked among us, or experienced life alongside us, and so on. All of these would have adequately communicated the idea. But here John goes back to what, even at his time, was an old-fashioned Greek word that had traditionally been used to translate the Hebrew word tabernacle into Greek. Literally, John writes that Jesus tabernacled among us. He lived as a tabernacle among us. And if that sounds weird, it would have sounded weird to John's first readers too. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. John is reminding us of an Old Testament story about Moses. It's no coincidence that John's going to bring up Moses in just two more sentences. He wants you to be thinking about Moses at this point. Going way back in the story, Moses is on the top of Mount Sinai. He's encountering God, and he says, God, I know that you've, you, you, you've hidden your glory behind the cloud of glory and the pillar of fire and all these things, but, but I want to know you, and I want to see your glory. And God says, you can't see my glory. It would overwhelm you. It would blow your mind if you saw my glory. You couldn't handle seeing my glory. I love you, Moses, but I can't show you my full glory. There's no way you would comprehend it. There's no way you would understand it. It would blow your mind. But what I will do, God says, is uh, I'll have you build a tabernacle, a big tent. And then I'll, I'll have you set aside part of that tent as the Holy of Holies. And that's more my glory will dwell. So although you're never going to see my glory face to face, um, I'll dwell among you. I'll be hidden away in the tabernacle where you can't see my glory, but you know that my glory is with you. And you can tell the people that my real glory, that they only catch glimpses of in smoke and clouds and fire, will dwell there and be present with them. But they can't see my glory. They'll never understand it. And God goes on to tell Moses all the details of the tabernacle and what to do things. And so Moses has a tabernacle constructed where the glory of God dwells, but that we can't see. Do you notice what John tells us? John tells us that Jesus tabernacled among us and that we can see his glory. We can see the glory of God because we can see Jesus. This tabernacle, we find God's full glory and we can see his glory. And if you believe that Jesus lived the life you should have lived and that Jesus died the death you should have died, and, spoiler alert, that Jesus rose to live again on that level of existence that God always intended you to live on, designed you to live on in light, life, and love, that God de deeply desires you to live on, then you can see God's glory and live forever. Merry Christmas. Amen.